Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Jess Hill, an investigative journalist who's been researching and writing about domestic violence since 2014. We speak with Jess today about her book, newly released in the U.S., called See What You Made Me Do, The Dangers of Domestic Abuse That We Ignore, Explain Away, or Refuse to See, which offers a primer on the gendered nature of violence, the ways in which society enables and excuses male entitlement to power over, and the normalization and erasure of men's violence against women in our media and discourse. Jess and I also delve into a systems approach to confronting and preventing abuse, including examining proposals for criminal justice reform, such as women's policing, the High Point model, and a justice reinvestment model in Australia. Welcome, Jess. Hi, Terry. So nice to have you back again. You're the first guest that we've had on the show that's coming back. And I I wanted to make sure that our guests have an opportunity to be aware of the fact that your book that was released last year now is in the U.S. Yay. Yeah, it took ages to rewrite it too. So I do hope that it finds some readers because about six months replacing every statistic, replacing stories, analysis, you know. Let's get started with the book itself. Why did you have to rewrite it? I actually, I thought it was perfect. And I didn't understand why we needed to have US statistics when this issue is so universal and crosses boundaries. You should have told my publisher. Um, no, it, because I think that what my publisher was was wanting, and they were, they were pretty good, like they left a lot of the content as is because, as you're saying, it's, it's totally internationally relevant and it was written with that in mind. Um, but I think that what we wanted to do was make sure that when Americans were reading this that they didn't sort of think, oh, wow, Australia has a really bad problem. And because there weren't so many American statistics in there, somehow think that that problem did not apply in the same way in the States. So I I didn't want to be that cognitive disconnect where you have to sort of imagine, oh, well, if it's that bad in Australia, maybe it's something, I don't know, in America. I just wanted it to read as though it was written specifically for an American audience. And I, I figured that the time that it took to really personalize that was worth it. Okay. With regard to English speaking countries, the US, Canada, Britain, Australia. What's the comparison in terms of the rates of domestic abuse? I would think that because of our guns here, that it's probably more serious here than anywhere else. Yeah, uh, you know, and I I haven't done the calculation in my head to scale, uh, like whether on parity, it's the same, but you know, three women being killed every day in the States versus one woman a week in Australia. So if we say that's like 21 times the number of people being killed in Australia, you don't have 21 times our population. We've got 25 million, give or take. Um, You've got over 300 million. So, yes, just on the back of the envelope that you definitely have a more intense homicide problem. Since the Violence Against Women Act was introduced in the 90s, a great deal of domestic 
abuse actually did reduce. I mean, it did have quite a reductive effect in the States, that that incredible sort of funding package and um, and a, the galvanising of the system into that one act. That's a terrible result that it's still that high. And, you know, as Rachel Louise Snyder wrote about in her book, No Visible Bruises, you know, guns are absolutely at the centre of it, as you say. And in Australia, you know, we had a massacre in 1996 that was the worst we'd ever had in Tasmania. And our Prime Minister put restrictions on guns immediately and guns were bought back, they were handed in. There was a lot of resistance from farmers and other people who were, um, you know, avid gun owners. But Australia just was absolutely resolute that this was not going to be something that we that we saw happen time and time again. But the NRA is so powerful in your country that it feels like no matter how bad the massacre gets, there's very little movement on guns. Well, I think that also is tied to, you mentioned, of course, patriarchy and male entitlement, but also the intersection with capitalism. And so all of these vested economic interests are very powerful in the US and they certainly do have a lot of influence in terms of lobbying in terms and regulating and creating policy that gives them the freedom to continue to make profit at the expense of human life. Yeah, and not only that, it's really it's the it's that American ethos of individual freedoms and this idea that's, you know, that's parlayed so neatly into neoliberalism which is about the the success of the individual, the freedom and agency of the individual, but more and more at the expense of the group. And I think, you know, what you often get a bit of stick from your neighbours up north in Canada is that the, the general sense in Canada is much more of collective identity, collective success, whereas in America the idea of collective success is it gets, it gets misbranded as socialism. Yeah, and... <laughs> It's unfortunate because that tension between individualism and collectivism is actually obviously having lots of harm right now and exacerbating the gendered impact of COVID in the U.S. in terms of people's willingness or rejection wearing masks. That's a huge problem, the masculinity issue coming out and being tied to asserting individual rights and liberties. And just, you know, when you you talked about socialism, too, I mean, there's just a lack of understanding of what these concepts are. And also there's, I think, a a right-wing propaganda machine that's also fueling a lot of the misinformation. 100%. And it's a very, I mean, really, when you look at it and you look at the core principle of patriarchy, I mean, the core is the right to have power over but really the core sort of principles of masculinity, which uh, is the highest, the highest expression of the patriarchy, is autonomy, independence, the idea that one is separate from others and one must pursue one's own, you know, ends and goals with like Larry a thought to you know, how that might affect other people. And then if you're thinking about how you affect other people, that's like feminine or it's weak, which are unfortunately synonyms in, you know, patriarchal mindset. And I think that you, that starts to, you really see that expressed through the guns issue. Um, you see, as you say, that expressed through the, the reluctance or the absolute, like, resistance to wear, to wear a mask and, and worse, to go to actual parties where you infect one another, you know, like, there's a type of, I guess, sickness at the core of American culture that appointing one better Supreme Court justice or 
you know, fixing bits and pieces is probably not going to resolve until there's a real reckoning with the extreme masculinist culture that America has. And that's not to say that it's extremely much or extremely misogynist, but it's extremely separate. And that whole thing of American exceptionalism is wrapped up in that. And it's interesting coming from Australia, um, having released the book here last year, and obviously releasing the book into America as an Australian is already difficult because, like, I'm coming from the colonies, you know, and <laughs> whether I've got anything interesting to say takes a lot more proving up. And, and the time of it is just, you know, America is obviously going through a lot right now, so it's hard to get attention on anything. But I really feel that that lack of importance of women's issues in the States and the lack of unity and, and momentum around it. Now, Australia's got a divided domestic violence sector. It's got lots of things that are pretty characteristic of this, of this type of work all around the world. But we have a lot of momentum here and there's a lot more people caring about violence against women here and have been for the past five years. Whereas I've, you know, and I can think of the top of my head, four or five journalists in a, you know, country of 25 million or so who specialise in reporting on that. And I can only think of that many in the States off the top of my head and I pay pretty close attention. So I just find that astounding. Yeah, and, you know, that lack of attention to women's issues and gender equality, I think, has been exacerbated with Justice Ginsburg's passing last Friday because there's been this huge increase of at least post online and social media and um, a lot of online groups popping up very quickly in response to, quote unquote, preserving her legacy. <laughs> and, and I have to say, well, I mean, obviously, I'm very sad that she's passed, but maybe this will actually wake up some women to the fact that we don't have gender equality, because we're at such a pivotal point where the proposed candidate to replace her, literally from like a cult-like religion that was the inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale, who believes that wives should defer to their husbands and make no decisions whatsoever. You know, it's literally that much of a throwback to the dark ages. So it's sad that it takes this much to actually hopefully wake people up. Yeah, and it's like, how close do you need to come to the brink? And I mean, we watch from this distance with slightly restrained horror. And it's easy to watch other people's, you know, issues and, and problems with, with horror and think we would do things differently. But we have a lot of blind spots in Australia. So I'm not claiming any sort of superiority here. It's very different when you've got that this type of physical distance from, from where it's all happening and mental distance. Look, if anything... If, if anything is needed to galvanise people to either come out to vote or to drag other people out to vote, and, that, and, and if Ginsburg's death is what really makes the difference and gets people energised about Biden in a way that maybe, you know, just in terms of their philosophies and how they feel about him personally or politically, they don't necessarily feel that energetic compared to someone like Sanders, then, like, thank God. Thank God. But I, I was saying to my husband, like, are there, how many examples are there where, say, for example, like a, star, a, a sort of situation like Germany was happening in 1932 doesn't turn into 1933 Germany and doesn't turn into 1939 Germany? Like how many examples in the world do we have of a country on the brink of absolutely descending into despotism where they just pull it back at the last minute? Um, and he said there's some, you know, there's, there's some examples of that in Latin America. Like, okay. 
Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, thank- uh, thankfully, you're giving me some hope. <laughs> so that with that, let's delve into some of the areas of your book that I'm going to not be repetitive, because the first time when we spoke, we didn't get yet a chance to talk about everything. And this time, I think we're going to try to go into the areas that we didn't touch upon more deeply. So the first is just the archetypes of an abuser. And if you could start there with describing the difference between a coercive controller and how you would define uh, a regular domestic abuser. It was really difficult. Like, you know, we've talked before about the fact that it would be be great if there was some sort of like objective test you could give to abusive people to really, you know, say you fit in this category and you fit in that category. But as it is, all we can do is observe behaviours inside a particular relationship and sort of come to conclusions based on those behaviours. But often, you know, someone might start off as as a much more low-grade sort of minor um, offender and then in the next relationship become a full-on coercive controller. So it's not like that these are particular types of people. It's more like particular types of behaviours in terms of the intimate relationship and, and, and what um, emerges inside that. So I really talk about, I mean, for want of a better term, it's not a perfect term, but I wanted to talk about those more low-grade offenders as insecure reactors. And basically what I mean by that is that not all perpetrators are enforcing these tight regimes of control. And so these men who I would say are at the lower end of the power and control spectrum they're not completely subordinating their partners, but they are. They do use emotional or physical abuse in order to gain power in the relationship. And they might do that to gain an advantage in an argument or to get certain things that they feel they're entitled to, to establish a, a an atmosphere in the relationship where it's easier for the partner just to sort of like compromise, et cetera. But it's not coercive control in the sense that It is not the overarching architecture where so many different things are slotting into place, which we'll discuss in a moment, to make the woman basically almost lose the sense of who they are, to feel absolutely trapped in a type of abuse that really never switches off. So this insecure reactor is, you know, like one guy that I used as as an example of this is a guy I called Nick, who I met um, when he was on a a restraining order. He was just at the back end of a 12-month restraining order. He'd been arrested after he'd shoved his wife out of bed during an argument. And it was the first time he'd been physically violent towards her. Certainly didn't think of himself as an abuser. And he actually said to the police, you know, I'm not a criminal, as they were loading him into the police van. And then when he got to the men's behaviour change program, he really understood, oh, the sorts of things, the language I was using, the derogatory language, that was abusive. And basically where he got to was the sense that I really want to make amends. I didn't realise that I was just spraying this stuff at my wife and what, what effect it was having. And I want to prove to her that I can be better. Now, I can say just from the people that he interacted with who recommended I speak to him, he was not sort of you know, orchestrating a campaign of control over his wife. That doesn't mean that he wasn't causing her great harm and trauma. I'm not suggesting that, you know, these guys who I put in the insecure reactor category are not harmful or are somehow just garden variety abusers. They can end up killing their partners, you know, but they're sort of more likely to be quite dysregulated. They don't really, they might've had violent backgrounds themselves. They've got these issues around intimacy 
and they've never really learned how to communicate and they're quite frustrated by that and so they lash out. So it's much more of a reactive type of violence or abuse. Whereas coercive control, this is the kind of controlling abuse that's really rooted in a historical imbalance of power. And what you're looking at is a campaign that is either subconscious or quite overt on behalf of the perpetrator through which they're basically trying to create a patriarchy in miniature in the household, um, to quote Evan Stark. So they're not just using abuse to hurt or humiliate their partners in the moment as a way of like just gaining strategic advantage in a fight. They are using particular techniques like isolation, gaslighting, micromanagement of behaviour, surveillance, degradation, threats, inducing debility and exhaustion through things like gaslighting or inducing their partner to um, into substance abuse, keeping them awake at night, all of these sorts of techniques which basically erode the victim's sense of autonomy, absolutely reduce her, her area of freedom and basically end up almost replacing her perspective with that of the perpetrator because little things that happen within coercive control, little things, but parts of coercive control can be enforcing trivial demands and even just that one part of it when the woman is constantly having to second guess what her partner is going to ask for and then punish if it is not done, then it just makes sense to almost vacate your own mind and try to see the world through the eyes of the perpetrator. Everything about coercive control, even down to in those cycle of violence type relationships where there actually is a, there are apologies and remorse, that alternating punishments with rewards is actually part of the system of abuse. Um, and I'm not saying that necessarily the perpetrator does that on purpose, although some do, especially very highly narcissistic or, you know, almost sociopathic types. But even instinctively, someone who wants to override someone else's autonomy knows that they have to pull back occasionally and and remind that person that there's a reason that they should stay with them. You know, like instinctively they know that if they just abuse unrelentingly that that person's more likely to try to escape. So if you if you just occasionally show up as the person they fell in love with, then you'll just keep that sort of hope spring alive enough to keep that person in the relationship and to keep them from seeing what's really happening to them. And that's, you know, I say in the book that basically coercive controllers are like magicians working sleight of hand tricks. They make the abuse invisible. And that's why, you know, more than half of women who experience this, and of course it happens in same-sex relationships too and to a minority of men in heterosexual relationships, but more than half of women who experience it don't even know that they're being abused because they're so busy trying to figure out what on earth is happening because it's absolutely, you know, a lot of the time it's Jekyll and Hyde type of behaviour. They're so busy trying to figure out what can I fix in myself to stop this happening or what can I fix in this person who I love and who seems to have just like turned on a dime or is so different to who I first met, surely there's a way to return that person to the way they used to be. And while they're trying to figure that out, it's very difficult to keep a clear eye on the fact that this person is actually ruining your life and endangering your life and and potentially your children as well. Is there a way, I mean, I've had this conversation recently with several people who, including Evan, (laughs) uh, with regard to quantifying coercive control, given the fact that we're we're not collecting data on it, is there a way to actually put a number on it? 
can we say, at least with heterosexual relationships where there's abuse, intimate partner violence, that because of the impact of male violence against women in those relationships, 100 of percent of them are coercive controlling because there's a impact that exacerbates gender inequality. Is that is is there a way to say that or I, I there'd be different opinions on that. I personally think that when we talk about coercive control and I really sort of anatomize it in the book into these eight techniques or behaviors, I think we have to sort of stay a bit loyal to the the idea of the system of coercive control. So obviously in all abuse there's going to be controlling tactics and there is obviously going to be the impact of, you know, of of further gender inequality, less financial independence for the woman, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I think when it comes to actual coercive control, when I see someone who is engaging in actual coercive control versus someone who is, I don't know, like has had a one-off where they've been a bit of a shit um, for, you know, some of the relationship they've hit once, but there's not this system where the woman's like lost sense of who she is or where she is being turned against her friends or turned against, you know, told to stop working or having her wages and benefits taken from her. I think there is, even though it's all on the same spectrum and it's hard to say where one ends and one begins, I think that sometimes you can look at a relationship and go, nah, that's not really coercive control. That's, that's, a, that's a shitty abusive relationship. What, you know, what Michael Johnson would call situational couple violence but it's not going to the extent of coercive control and it needs a different response. So I remember Evan had in in some research that he did, he'd sort of estimated it to be about 60 to 80% of women who seek help have experienced coercive control. But, and and I think, you know, if you speak anecdotally to the frontline services, they'll tell you that most of the women that they deal with describe that same system, that it is far fewer women coming in who've just had someone who's been a bit of a shit and abusive on and off. And as I say, it is very difficult to be very clear about who is abusive on and off in the eyes of a victim or who is actually engaging in an ongoing system. But generally speaking, when women have to like actually reach out to services and make that giant leap of trust to engage police or domestic violence sector, they're doing that because it's gotten pretty bad. So, yeah, I would say that just from what I hear, I think it's reasonable to assess that the vast majority of women who seek help have experienced coercive control. And when you use the term situational couple violence, is that the same as high conflict? Um, yeah, I guess, it, again, gray area, you know, where it's like, yeah, high conflict might come into that. I think the way that Michael Johnson would um, define it is that there has got to be some kind of violence um, expressed in that. So probably not just degrading comments or, you know, those sorts of things. But yeah, it's those, you know, really hideous relationships that look, some of them you absolutely could call police to. There may be like a serious physical incident. As I say, it can also escalate to homicide because it may be that something happens, this very dysregulated person absolutely overreacts in the moment and ends up killing their partner. So it's not like it's not dangerous. But to put it this way, 78 out of 79 domestic homicides in the last few years in the state that I live in, in New South Wales and Australia, had coercive control present before the homicide was committed. So 99% of those homicides were preceded by coercive control. And what we know is that coercive control is a the most dangerous form of abuse 
it is just as much an indicator of future homicide as something like strangulation, which is another sort of real precursor that we look for now. So when I see relationships that are really predicated on control, on domination, on isolation, and where the perpetrator, especially when they seem paranoid, needy, shamed, easily humiliated, that's where I my my hackles really go up, and that's they're the big red flags to me of the of the most dangerous kind of relationship and perpetrator. The reason I asked about the situational couple violence is because one of the trying to debunk some of the myths around domestic abuse, and there I think for the most part, most of the people that I am connected to in the advocacy community recognize that those are two distinct situations. That when I was in domestic violence training, the example that was given is the Michael Douglas film, The War of the Roses, where where both both people were vying for power, but there was no no sense of like domination and intimidation and fear, where one had a high hierarchy of power. And and so that obviously led to both of them dying at the end of the film. But that high conflict, you know, should not be conflated with domestic abuse and coercive control where there's a power imbalance because anger management it may apply to situational couple violence or high conflict, but certainly not in power and control situations. Exactly. So like couples counseling for a situational sort of situation, for a bit of want of a better word, um, may be appropriate. As you say, because the power imbalance is not there, it's not necessarily being exploited by one person in a situation where the other partner is at a severe disadvantage. And so absolutely, the way you define it um, is it absolutely gels with what I understand of situational couple violence. Sometimes the high conflict terminology is used in the um, context of family court. So it sort of throws me and it's just a problem with these terms is they can mean different things to different people. But, you know, and I, and I think that it's important to recognise also that some people will look at situational violence and there is a hit or a slap or a kick and they'll say, well, that is domestic violence. And they're not wrong. That is an assault. But it's not on the same level as coercive control. And it would not be right to say, for example, describe that as intimate terrorism. You know, when people say, well, we shouldn't call it domestic violence, or we shouldn't call it domestic abuse, we should call it intimate terrorism. I'm like, well, that captures coercive control, but it doesn't capture situational violence. And let's face it, if you're a police officer, you're dealing with both. Right. So in the one context, the situational couples violence might be considered domestic abuse from a legal perspective, because there's domestic abuse laws, but it doesn't necessarily equate to domestic abuse from the understanding of the power imbalance. Exactly. And that's where we get these sort of misreadings about so-called gender equality in domestic violence. And we and you get at that data saying that women commit just as much violence or even just as much extreme violence as men, obviously, with lesser impact on the male victim, um, which goes without saying, I'd imagine. But because, and this is what Michael Johnson worked out in the 90s, is that the group that's claiming gender equality was looking at the surveys that really look at situational couple violence. They count the hits and the slaps and the kicks, but they don't get any context around well, what did those acts mean? What was the context and how severe was that hit or slap depending on what had happened before and what happened after? You know, was that hit or slap a warning shot that said, if you do this again, I'll kill you? 
or was it I'm just like I'm just trying to get you away from me because you're you're annoying me you know like there's very different context around a particular assault and there, a lot of these like you know conflict tactic scale other surveys won't get the context around what that actual act meant and thus you get these sort of gender equal results um, but then you go to the police or the FBI or the women's services and what they're dealing with much more is the women who seek help who have overarchingly experienced coercive control and so that was sort of that fight between those two sort of areas between the gender equal people and the people that say it's predominantly male perpetrators, they're just using different data. And as I say, it's not to say that the other data is wrong. Yes, they are counting the kicks and the slaps. But as as one you know writer put it, a hit is not necessarily a hit. There are all different ways in which hits mean more depending on the language that has been established between the perpetrator and the victim prior to that hit. So, yeah, you know, for Michael Kimmel, who's done a lot of work on this, he said that this abstract perspective where you just count the hits and the slaps without putting any context around it, it's like saying, you know, between 1914 and 1918, millions of men died, but failing to tell people that's because of there was a world war. It's just like, oh, they just happened to die, right? But there's a reason why so many men died at that time. Um, and that's what we don't get through these surveys is, well, what was the impact of that, um, of that kick or that slap? Basically, what you're saying is that the data of women's violence against men has been uh, interpreted in a way where situational violence and coercive control are being conflated. But if we look at it separately, the coercive control data supports that women are predominantly the victims of those kinds of abuse and that they are more severely harmed than men. Precisely. And not to mention the fact, and this is what you know Johnson also pointed out, and I found that this was the same in the Australian survey results, in our equivalent results, the personal safety survey. And that is that, you know, the way that they do these surveys is that they will go and speak to a person and ask them these questions directly. Have you experienced physical or sexual violence in the last 12 months? What was that, etc.? And what uh, Michael Johnson pointed out is that you often see like non-responders, the percentage of people who refuse to respond to that survey. And he said, that's where you've got the coercive control hiding because if you're a victim of coercive control, it is usually absolutely implicit. Either you've been threatened not to say anything or your need to be loyal to the perpetrator um, would be thus so that you would not answer questions from a stranger asking about that. So his point was actually some of these surveys won't pick up on coercive control situations at all and that you're going to pick up mostly just the situational couple violence. And, of course, I mean, if you're surveying the population, situational couple violence is reasonably common. People get in really souped-up rows, people get drunk, people get high, and they overreact in a situation but inside that relationship that overreaction that slap or that hit may not actually be a really serious event or it may be that it's so serious that it never ever happens again and it's certainly not necessarily preceded by degradation and threats and isolation it could literally just be an overreaction or like you know the great late Ellen Pence said some of this type of situational violence literally may be solved if the substance abuse problem is solved, like it may not be an attitudinal problem, it may actually be an addiction problem, which is st 
still considered a radical position now, the idea that you would that you would take care of someone's problems and see if that alleviated the violence because it's it's always got to be so much about their attitudes and their, you know, whether they're misogynists or not. But this is a really complex area and you've really got to look at the exact behaviours that you're dealing with in order to, to diagnose how to, how to fix them. I think another issue that uh, was mentioned in the data chapter was the fact that if the survey respondents didn't understand what course of control was and didn't grasp that there's a sense of connection that what they were experiencing was a, a form of abuse, they were not going to be able to respond in the affirmative. And so that data wasn't being captured as well. And not to mention the fact that, you know, as Evan Stark points out, in a lot of coercive control relationships, physical violence is either minor or it doesn't occur at all. And certainly you can have some of the most horrific coercive control relationships. One I document in the book between people I've called Jasmine and Nelson, you know, where after their baby was born, he forced her to sleep in the car with her newborn baby and would only invite her back into the house for uh, to do housework or to have sex with him, where he would travel interstate to go off and have sex with other women and then return back with videos of him doing that and make Jasmine watch. And that all of this was held together by his campaign of degradation in which he only referred to her as slut and tried to teach the baby to do that and also threatened to either kill her, their baby, or her friends and family if, for example, when she was sleeping in the car, she went to her mother's house. So in this story, there was very, very little physical violence until there was a major assault. But if she was surveyed, if they said, in the last 12 months, have you experienced physical or sexual violence, she would have said no, because she hadn't. Right. And in the US, there's um, famously, you know, Laura Richards' Dirty John podcast episode and the real story. There was no physical violence until the very end when uh, there was an attack on the daughter. Threat to kill, obviously, years and years of just psychological and emotional manipulation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is that, you know, while there is about half of women who don't even realize they're being abused until the penny drops at some point, there are also equally a number of women who know exactly how dangerous their perpetrator is, but are so trapped because of the threats, because of the feeling of the utter loss of dignity and self-esteem that that they won't be able to find a life outside of this or that even if they try, something will be harmed that, you know, that, that they love. But those people know how dangerous their perpetrator is, but they find it so hard to get help because in a lot of areas outside the UK particularly, a lot of those um, sorts of behaviours are not criminalised, you know, if even if you're restricting your partner's liberty, taking their wages and benefits, isolating them, trapping them in the house, etc. there's very little recourse from the criminal justice system. And if you go to the police, I mean, too often the response is, well, you know, we really can't do anything, come back when he hits you. I mean, literally I've heard police say that. And so you've got these women who are just like sitting ducks, just waiting for some way to prove what they're going through and knowing all the time just how dangerous that person is. It's really unacceptable. By the time this interview comes out, this video that I'm going to refer to will have been released. Have you heard that in England, they did a PSA on coercive control and it's called Timekeeper? It's like a 20-minute PSA. Have you heard about that? 
I've heard, yeah, was that made by Chris Godwin? I think so. Yeah, I like just got tagged in something about it, but I've not watched it okay. yet. Okay, it's amazing. I was able to get a, a see a copy, and one part where there was an insinuation of violence, it wasn't clear, and I wish that they had taken that out because it was so powerful without it. But there was a part in terms of the degradation where the abuser poured milk on the floor and made the the wife wipe it up and then he would just keep pouring you know she'd be on her knees wiping it up and at some point you know he poured it on her head and none of those behaviors are illegal <laughs> right so if you were in that in that situation you can't tell the police he poured milk on me that sounds so innocuous exactly and that's the problem that you know and because um, a lot of victims of coercive control are living in this state of confusion and contradiction, extreme threat, trying to make head or tail of what is happening to them. It's really hard for them often to explain what is happening. So if someone came in from outside, walked into that scene and saw it without any alliance to either person, they they would watch that and go, oh my God, that's disgusting. Like she needs help, Right. But the person inside it is often rationalizing it. They may be trying to protect the feelings of the perpetrator, so making it look like it's not harming them. They may be trying to protect their own dignity by like looking like even like laughing through it. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which women are trying to make it okay, to just make it so that it's not absolutely destroying their dignity and sense of agency and not absolutely reducing them and where they can feel like that there's some sense of their own resistance in there. It's very difficult for them to go into a police station and say, this, 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 this happened, because what really is threatening is the atmosphere and it's the the particular look or the, the particular little thing that is said and the woman knows what that means, but nobody else does. Yeah, I, I did an interview recently where I know so many protective moms, so I've heard all their stories, and you know, I myself am one. And but each time when you hear a new story, you still go through the process of kind of assessing the story, <laughs> even though, of course, you know, I come with open mind and believing them. And the the way that this survivor described her experience, because it was so much about the gaslighting and questioning her reality and her interpretation of it. As she was explaining, it was like this meandering. And then her last statement was, and then my feeling was just a great sense of empathy towards him. And I thought, wow, that's exactly how I experienced it, where you end up, you know, where the abuser makes himself seem like the victim and you're like confused about all of the things that you experience. It's not even that you're rationalizing it. You're you don't know how to process it. And then the manipulation is that you make, he's the one who gets the attention. He's the one who's been victimized. And so that keeps you in the relationship because because of that construct. Well, I think that, you know, victims are really, or people, women who experience this, they're, they're really highly tuned to their partner's shame, you know, and that feeling of shame in the room is unbearable not just for the perpetrator who may try to displace it by just getting power over and you know and just and and projecting that shame and feeling of degradation onto their partner but the feeling of shame in the room is really unbearable for the victim as well so you go to make that person feel better or feel like oh it wasn't so bad or i understand you know 
constantly and, and women are socialized to repair men's shame. I mean, that's that's how we're that's how we're socialized. We're we're rewarded for being relational, for being good in relationship, for being the one to be able to fix the problems and to attend to the man who often, you know, too often these guys don't have anywhere else to express their their true feelings. They don't have close male friends. They may not have close relationships with their family. So that you have to play the part not only of lover and partner, mother, best friend, et cetera, and also just like someone for, on whom they can unleash all of this frustration, shame, anger, entitlement to power, it's like you have to contain it all. And a lot of women, I think that, you know, what we don't talk about enough in terms of what makes a woman vulnerable to being or staying in a relationship like this is selfless empathy. But actually it's the selfless empathy of women that, and this is awful to think about, but that actually makes them more likely to want to be with someone once they start showing all these red flags, you know, to want to try to fix them instead of just going, fuck off. <laughs> I don't want any part of this, you know. And that's a part of what I've been really talking about with um, people in Australia is that, you know, as much as, yes, we of course we want, like, you know, young girls to be fully embodied in their strength and empowered and et cetera, but I know plenty of women who have, who have actually felt themselves to be the stronger person in the relationship and that their strength was what was going to fix it and they can almost get hubristic about it, like I alone will be able to fix this situation. So my thing is like what we really need to try to build into girls from a young age is self-love, so empathy from a position of self-love, not selflessness, and an absolute allegiance to their own independence. I totally agree with you, and that's actually why our next book in our book club for the Engendered Collective is Bell Hook's book, Communion, about self-love. Oh, great. <laughs> He's such a genius. I don't understand how during the whole Me Too movement and everything that has happened in our conversations around patriarchy, where is Bell Hooks? Why is she not just being relaunched onto the world stage as this mega superstar? Because for me, when I read her books, when I read things like The Will to Change, you know, I'm like, this is it. This is the closest to actual understanding, actual honesty, actual empathy with both men and women for what patriarchy does to us both. It's just transcendent and it's better than anything else that I've read. And I'm just wondering, where is she? <laughs> I totally agree. Like her, her trilogy love series is it. If everybody read that and followed it, let's get to another myth before we get to interventions, which is what I want to talk about next. This other myth that men who abuse, you know, have an anger management problem and, and you pose the two archetypes the pit bull and the cobra. So can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, for want of better terms, um, as usual, like every term that we have to describe this is really um, inadequate. And certainly I, I refrain from certainly labeling perpetrators as cobras and pit bulls because I think it's dehumanizing. And that's probably actually where a lot of perpetrators hide behind that dehumanizing language. But I included the analysis of pit bull and cobras in the book because I was trying to sort of get to a sense of how have researchers tried to illustrate that perpetrators are not all the same? You know, how have they gone about this? And so in the 90s, there were two psychology professors, doctors John Gottman and Neil Jacobson, and they had this thing called the Love Lab. 
and they were doing all sorts of research, but they did a particular research experiment on um, what ended up being about 63 or so coercive controllers and their partners. So they actually connected both the people in the couple to polygraph machines so that they could record heart rate, respiration, blood pressure, and then they also had a coding machine for certain language use, like it was a pretty high-tech setup. And then they got them into the lab and they basically asked them to fight, which is a pretty extreme experiment and one that I'm sure you would not get past ethics committees now. And so they were basically kind of kind of crunching the data on these um, 63 couples. And, and in these couples, the men had a history of controlling behavior. So it was clear that there was coercive control that was, um, that was at the core of this, these dynamics. And what they found is that about 20% of these men, instead of as they got more and more aggressive, instead of their heart rate going up and then becoming more sweaty and all the physiological responses we expect, their heart rate actually went down the more aggressive they became in the lab. And it actually dropped to the point where internally they were more calm than when they'd been asked to just sit and relax before they were put in the lab. And when they sort of played the tapes of the, this 20% of guys um, again and again, what they found is that there was a particular type of response these guys had that was different to the other 80% of men. And that was that they were observed to be more aggressive, they were more sadistic, and they went from like zero to 100% incredibly quickly. And I guess that's why they, they called the cobras because it was the idea that they would, they would arch up and they would strike with really horrific um, proficiency and and directness. And what they observed as they studied these couples over time is that these men were, the, were more likely to be dangerous when they were about to be exposed, but they didn't really have that much of an intimate attachment to their partners. So they loved and needed having someone to control and they needed to set that up in their intimate relationships. But they weren't really that fast who that was. They certainly were attached to the person once they had them because it's a lot of hard work to get someone in that position, but it wasn't like they felt genuine sense of love for them. And then the other 80% of guys who they turned the pit bulls were much slower to anger, but once they got going, it was very hard to stop them. And, um, and of course, all the physiological responses were what you'd expect as they got more aggressive, their heart rates rose, they got, you know, sweatier, et cetera. And what they saw in the pit bulls is that as opposed to the cobras, they were the types of guys who were incredibly needy and attached to their partners, very much what they would describe as being passionately in love with their partners, but also boiling over with resentment um, and a type of hatred towards them, almost like a type of hatred towards their partners for making them feel so vulnerable. And they said that essentially as time went on, they observed these couples these guys were the kind who would were more likely to stalk and potentially kill their partners after they'd left. Whereas the cobras, like more or less, were pretty happy to let things go. Not all of them, but like it, they would just move on to the next person. It's just too hard to try to like you know chase someone who you don't really care about. May as well just go and find someone else. Um, yeah. Whereas the pitbulls were long term, much more um, were much more dangerous. Interestingly, I think it was about three years later or several years later anyway, they looked at how many of these people were still together. The sort of so-called pit bulls and their wives, a number of them had broken up and things were continuing in their own way there, but not one 
of the Cobra relationships had broken up. And that's the sense that the women were absolutely too terrified to leave because that point of leaving and exposure was the most dangerous point of all. So I think it's interesting in the sense that, you know, I mean, these results that really should be said have not been replicated in other labs. And Dr. Gottman said part of that is because other labs haven't had the same equipment, um, et cetera. But this basic sort of dichotomy has been repeated in a lot of typologies. So Amy Holtzworth-Monroe has the kind of like cold sociopathic type controller versus like the paranoid dysmorphic, you know, type of almost borderline personality disorder type of controller who is absolutely terrified that their partner is going to leave, who is riddled with with shame and who who acts from that position of um, an absolute fear of humiliation and and um, betrayal that's why I thought even though that that study hasn't been replicated it is an incredible study and incredible to note that 20 percent of these guys their heart rate actually went down as they started attacking but essentially that's what we see more or less is that some guys may seem to be a bit of both and some guys will go absolutely that guy fits in that category and this guy fits in that category. However, <laughs> a judge trying to do that from the bench or a family report writer trying to do that in, you know, after meeting them for two hours is a totally, it's a very bad thing for them to believe they can do, <laughs> put it that way, um, because it's very difficult to diagnose this. And even Amy Holtzworth-Monroe said she's really horrified when she sees judges using these typologies as a way to try to just like shelve off guys onto here, this you're in this category, you're in that category, when they've really seen only very little um, of their behavior. In terms of the cultural influences of these kinds of behaviors, you know, I, I wrote a piece early in the year where I referred to domestic abuse as having existed since the beginning of time. <laughs> and, a, and one of my readers responded, no, it was around, it's actually not true, it was around 800 BC, because I was comparing racism and sexism. <laughs> So 1619 in the U.S. versus 800 B.C., you know, still almost almost since the beginning of time. And it was interesting in your book how you described that current day domestic abuse actually had its cultural origins in Britain through the laws that regulated and were designed to protect marriage, but not women. And so that was really interesting because I think it gives us hope that these social constructs, they can be created, but they could also be dismantled. Well, this is why it was so eye-opening and spending so much time writing the First Nations chapter, because it really gave me this entirely different perspective on the history of family violence and domestic abuse and how we've responded both since, say, for example, Australia and, and the United States were colonised and what the sort of responses were prior to that as, as best as we can understand. I mean, really, there's always been a vulnerability to gender-based violence. And you see that in the, the storytelling and the myths and legends of, of, you know, basically all groups. And that, that includes Indigenous Australians who we, we can say with, with certainty that they've been here for at least 60,000 years. And there's a story about the Seven Sisters who have to flee this sorcerer, Wadinaru, who's trying to rape them, who's led by his penis, is a very plays a very big role in that story. And there are various iterations of that story that are told across Australia by different nations. But essentially what it tells us, and we see these sort of like, you know, violence against women stories played out 
they're often used as warnings, as, as sort of education stories um, from mothers to young girls and grandmothers to their granddaughters, is that there has always been a vulnerability to men's violence against women. It's about how you respond to that and it's about what the group does in response to that. So say, for example, in First Nations Australia, the type of response they had was very much governed by the understanding that the health of the collective is the health of the individual, is the health of the land that they're living in. It is all interconnected. And so their law was very particular. It did not excuse the powerful. It did not excuse the people with more influence that if a woman was raped or if a woman was abducted or if, you know, if a woman was abused, that there's a particular response. So, for example, when the British came and colonised Australia, something that's very little um, talked about here is that when there were, um, often when there were massacres of Indigenous people by settlers, a lot of those massacres were preceded by an event that usually went like this. A white man came and abducted an Aboriginal woman or girl, took them away, probably raped them, and then because there was absolutely no justice to be had for that white man, the traditional punishment would be meted out to him, which was often for him to be killed. Um, or for him to be attacked, or for him to be speared, or whatever it was. And the massacre would happen in response to that meeting out of traditional justice. So the line of sexual violence and how that absolutely mediated relationships between First Nations and white settlers is absolutely critical to our understanding, not only of colonisation and how both our nations were built, but also about the, the present-day experience of family violence, both in our general culture but also the, the experience that First Nations people have. And what is really interesting, because in the American book I really compare the experience of First Nations women in the States and in Australia, what's fascinating and was completely surprising to me about um, North America is that statistically speaking, and this is an absolute anom anomaly in crime stats, it's about 90 plus percent of Native women, their perpetrators, domestic violence perpetrators, are non-Native. I mean, that's just shocking. So you can see in that statistic what kind of systemic impunity has been built in. And you can also see a straight line from the sexual violence that was used against Aboriginal women and girls in the States and, first, and Native women and girls and how that has drawn a straight line through to the present day. And what was so interesting to me as an Australian because there's always been this talk about, you know, well, family violence is cultural for First Nations people here. It's just how they do things. It's, you know, black love, blah, 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 was to go back and go, okay, so what did family violence look like in Britain before the tall ships first arrived in Australia carrying the first settlers? And what it looked like was what this feminist, amazing feminist Frances Power Cobb described as wife torture. Like she couldn't even describe it as wife abuse because she was like, that just does not even start to describe what's happening in these relationships. And, you know, not only that, you've got the extreme discipline towards children, extreme sexual violence against children, children in situations of slavery, you know, once industrial capitalism gets going and they're put into the factories. And that's the culture that arrived in Australia. It's the culture that was brought to North America. And actually you have both in North America and in Australia, you have Jesuits, you have missionaries, you have settlers expressing their astonishment at how gently the First Nations people were raising their children and then actually expressing their disgust at how little discipline is used. And their response to that to try to assimilate these children into whiteness 
was in Australia to remove them, to abduct them from their families and move them into white homes and train them into domestic labour and often physically and sexually abuse them. And in the States to move these Native children into boarding schools and literally march them in military drills. Like that's our, that's the history of whiteness. Just like, here's how to be white. We're going to abuse you. We're going to take you away from the things that you love and we're going to march you in military drills. I mean, that is a horrific history. And it's not one certainly that I feel proud to talk about. That culture, we basically brought family violence. When I say we, I say my British ancestors brought family violence to Australia like an invasive pest. And it's the same story in North America. This is not something that, well, the the British and the Spanish came and civilised these poor savages. It's like they had the model for how to raise children properly, for how to deal with intimacy in a way that maintained these relations and dealt with the sort of natural power imbalances that would try to emerge. And we fucked that up. <laughs> I believe you used the term egalitarian hegemony to describe how an indigenous community's male authority was balanced by women's sovereignty over some realms. And that actually, that example, that chapter reminded me of this story I read that my co-host had shared with me in a previous episode about baboons in Kenya. I don't know if you've heard about that, but there was a case about 20 years ago where the most belligerent members of this uh, community of baboons um, had fought to eat from this tourist garbage dump that had meat that was infected with bovine tuberculosis. And so what happened was the most aggressive belligerent members of that baboon community ended up dying. And so the result was that you had a cultural swing towards pacifism um, that lasted for decades. And the idea was that the culture showed that behaviors and skills can be learned because of cultural norms that were set. I mean, if baboons can learn it, we can as well, right? And so let's turn now to the interventions. If we were to set cultural norms where the highest levels of coercion and and violence like those exhibited by these baboons who died off were not acceptable and not tolerated or were at least held accountable, what would that look like? And in your book, you talked about several interventions that I wanted to delve into, especially since in the context, uh, since you've published the book last year, you've been very public about your support for criminalizing coercive control. So first, what does that mean in terms of criminalizing coercive control? What would that have as an impact? I think anytime you criminalize something, you declare it as socially unacceptable. And so I think back to when we criminalized marital rape, culturally, the impact of that was to even give it a name, was to say that when you say I do, you don't consent to having sex at whichever time your husband demands it. That was a revolution in itself to announce to women that consent is a rolling as a rolling thing that they can withdraw and give anytime they feel that they see fit. So I think that the declaration of what is socially unacceptable is somewhat separate to how that is enforced, which is something that requires constant attention. So going back to the marital rape issue, there'd be very, very few prosecutions, I'm sure, of marital rape. And we can have conversations about the fact that 
what people are sort of talking about right now is that in as much as the prosecution and conviction rates are so low for sexual assault generally, it's almost as though it's been decriminalised. But there is a big gap between decriminalising rape and just having a low conviction rate, right? So for me, when we talk about the inadequacy of the justice system to respond to this, I'm not saying that is a separate conversation because it's not. It's a conversation that needs to be had in tandem. But I don't think that it means that we stop from declaring behaviours like coercive control, which are tantamount to torture, as socially unacceptable through our legal statutes. How that then gets responded to, well, that's a matter of, you know, some people may say that a training regime of police and the judiciary and, you know, any other first responders, as we've seen in Scotland, is a good place to start. And that will improve the nature and quality of those responses from police and the judiciary. I kind of go for a a more immediate and radical reform and that is I advocate very strongly for a system of women's police stations so like gender-based policing not to say that this is not for non-binary trans male victims etc to use as well if they are in these situations but just for shorthand they're called police stations for women they operate across Latin America and um, and other countries across the world And essentially, they are a policing force that is 100% dedicated to policing family violence and domestic abuse. So it is police who want to do that work, who are put into those positions, for whom a career path is made very clear all the way up to commissioner of that particular force. And that is very important because at the moment, police are virtually de-incentivized to work on domestic violence. But more to the point is these police stations, because they're not about locking up perpetrators in cells or whatever, you don't have this really intimidating environment where you walk into a often grey, cold room where there's like a plate of glass between you and the police officer where you're almost already positioned as a threat. You have a warm house positioned in the neighbourhood where there's lovely artwork on the, on the walls, it's brightly painted, and where there is not only police, but there's social workers, there's um, psychologists, there's lawyers, people there to assist with financial aid. So it's a one-stop shop, sort of like the family justice centres in the States, but with police, with a very gender-based policing sort of response and with police who are absolutely um, alert to the, the failures of the system more generally and who advocate for the people who come to them. Now, interestingly, in, in Argentina... Two-thirds of the women who come to these police stations, and there are hundreds of them across Argentina, two-thirds of the women actually do not seek a, a further criminal justice response, so they don't seek to take it through the courts, etc. But what the police have the capacity to do in these situations is go to the house and have a chat to the perpetrator, go to the house and deliver an ouster order to the perpetrator, go to the house and say, if you don't stop offending, here's what's going to happen. Basically create a sense of visibility you know, around the perpetrator. But it is basically a space in which women can come at a time when they may not even be sure if something is like criminal or is even domestic abuse, but they feel uncomfortable, they feel slightly unsafe, they want to talk to someone about it, and that's what this space is there for them. And they offer survival support groups. They also offer places to refer men to. And they, you know, while the women are there, if they've got children, they'll literally have people care for their children while they do the police interview. It is absolutely 
180-degree difference from the general police response where even the most empathic and dedicated police who are absolutely in the force to help domestic violence victims still have to operate in this incredibly masculinist culture where actually delivering a the sort of response that victims need is actively discouraged because it takes too much time, because there are judgments on whether a victim is worthy or not of that time, because of all sorts of things, misogyny, white supremacy, etc. So when I sort of talk about I want to criminalise coercive control, I want to talk about a much more sophisticated response to domestic violence that includes changing the way, potentially, that we even consider policing it. But I don't think that we have to wait for some perfect policing system in order to start reconsidering how we consider domestic abuse to be a crime. Remembering also that when domestic violence victims and perpetrators go into the court system, I can't speak for America, but certainly for Australia, that even if jail time is on the table, like jail time is not the only option. Depending on which state you're in, you can, um, there may be a referral to a batterer intervention program. There may be a referral to substance abuse programs. It's basically getting that perpetrator inside that system so that a response can be delegated. And it's not like, well, now we've got them inside the justice system, now they're going to jail. There are different ways in which we can deal with that. Sometimes jail time may be the only response. I mean, like if you're talking about crimes that are, are so great that were they committed against a stranger, there'd be no question about whether or not there was jail time. Sometimes that is necessarily the only deterrent response. But I think that, you know, I personally prefer other models like focus deterrence and um, justice reinvestment where you try to intervene early, but you get these people stepping forward early in the relationship, not when it's already so far gone, the danger is is so escalated that it's almost too late to intervene without there potentially being greater levels of violence or, you know, the victims in danger of like being forced out of the house and, and you know, facing um, a, a future of poverty um, as so many women are afraid of. So focused deterrence in North Carolina that you were referring to, um, I had shared in your for original book, I don't know if it was the f- full chapter, but the section on focused deterrence because I felt like, to me, that was what restorative justice should look like, because there was accountability uh, first, and there was respect for the agency of the perpetrator to make a choice. And so the response that I got from some people who work in the domestic abuse community was that it was, quote, unquote, too harsh on the men, on the perpetrators. You say in your book, like, it's not for everyone. So I, I, I thought that's what you meant. So could you briefly just describe what is what is focused deterrence and what did you mean by it's not for everyone? Did you mean that it's too harsh? <laughs> no, no, I don't even remember writing it's not for everyone. Um, but um, <laughs> but um, focused deterrence, I think, is the exact opposite of harshness. In fact, it is appealing to the offender's rationality. It's saying we respect you enough to give you um, the opportunity to stop doing what you're doing and we will help you, we will also help the person you're victimising and your children to, but we'll help you to overcome this problem. We don't want to throw you in jail, but we know what you're doing. You know, that's the, this is the first point, is that we know what you're doing. So when those first 
that first report comes through um, of a, an incident or whatever happens, police go around. The delisters are people who have come to the attention of police, but they haven't committed an arrestable offence, right? So they get a police visit and they get a letter telling them that they're now being monitored. If the delister is arrested, then he becomes a C-lister. And so he'd get a visit from a detective, either at home or in prison, who would explain the new consequences. So under this new model in which domestic violence had been declared as the number one public safety threat, there were going to be longer prison sentences, harsher probation conditions, and so on. And so this is their chance to realise that actually the consequences for reoffending is going to be certain and swift. There are no loopholes to exploit. The judiciary, the police, all of the different departments and agencies are working hand in hand. And so you need to realise that what happens now and the choices that you make now are going to basically determine your future. And this is appealing to their rationality, that if you want to stop offending, you can. Then if a C-lister re-offended, they were moved to the B-list. And that meant that they needed to attend a public call-in at the city hall And literally they would be, as they were in this scene I described in the book in February in 2012, they'd be sort of sat down the front. It's an open call-in. Anyone from the community can come in. And first of all, members of the community, um, the High Point Communities Against Violence, would file in. So Baptist preachers, ex-motorbike gang members and other community members would line up one after the other and say, declare that they were against violence and abuse, but that we love and respect you and we want to help you. So the first message given was, we believe in you, we want you to be better, we want you back in the community, um, but we are against domestic violence and we're not putting up with it anymore. Then once they all filed out and said, you know, we'll be here afterwards if you want to talk to us, then in would file the law enforcement. And so on that panel, you would have everyone from the chief of police, to the local representative from the FBI, from firearms, the federal marshal, parole, etc. And one by one, they would explain to these men how the loopholes had been closed and the new approach. And then they would get a letter at the end of that describing exactly what they already had on them, what kind of sentence might be attached to that, and what the next steps were. Now, that letter was co-written with the victim. And all or every step along the way, the victim would be consulted to make sure that what was being done was not going to provoke or was not going to further endanger her or the children. And so they knew when they were doing this, because they'd used this um, strategy on gun violence and on drugs in High Point, and it certainly has been very successful against guns um, in the States. But they knew that there was a risk that they were going to provoke these guys, you know, by calling them out. But What was so interesting was that the victim response was to say that them being called out in that environment was actually actually had quite an immediate effect on a lot of these guys, Um, such to the point that, you know, I recently got in touch with the police in High Point and they said they haven't had to have a call in to Town Hall for many years because actually the D and C list warnings were enough to stop the abuse. Now, a whole part of the focus deterrence program is about maintaining visibility. So they don't want sort of the abuse just to go underground. And as David Kennedy, who's the sort of um, intellectual designer of focus deterrence, the the worst possible um, outcome would be that they get the sense they're being watched. And so they drag the victim down to the basement and they keep her there where she can't contact anyone. So the visibility 
and having people sort of keeping an eye was really fundamental to this. But what was really amazing for me is that the High Point Solution was done in absolute collaboration with the community. So every week they would, um, the High Point community groups and, and all of these different representatives from the various departments, domestic violence community and the justice departments would get together and like case manage what had happened in the week prior but it would also be an opportunity for domestic violence advocates at that table to educate everybody. You know, so there were these constant education sessions, sessions to get to know each other, to build trust, to explain to one another why certain um, approaches didn't work, but to work together so that it didn't feel like one, one, you know, one part of the response might have been doing really well and then it was falling over in the next part. So this was like a closed system. And the effect they had on re-victimisation was amazing, but on domestic homicide, it was really stark. So intimate partner violence arrests were down by 20% within a few years, as was the percentage of victims injured. But they went from having about three homicides per year in the six years before the strategy began. And then in the decades since it began, there have been nine. So the yearly average went down to about one. So it reduced by two thirds. And I think what was really telling about that is that the homicides that did happen, I think only one of them were, had actually been in touch with police. So one of them, I think, was a couple passing through town. There were, and there were other people who just didn't come to the attention of police. But what they sort of figured out is that if we can make contact with this perpetrator, we think we can prevent domestic homicide. We can prevent them from killing their partner. To be clear, there's Barry Goldstein uh, talks about the Quincy solution and the idea that domestic abuse is very common amongst in Quincy, Massachusetts, um, the study there in the majority of the inmates in that prison. And so the idea was that if you can prevent domestic violence, you can prevent future crimes. So that this investment in the community to prevent domestic violence reoccurrence is actually a way to invest in the safety and well-being of the community long term. And vice versa as well. And that's what's amazing about justice reinvestment, as you're sort of describing, you know, like where I really profiled that in Burke um, in outback New South Wales in Australia. The whole point was you, you want to identify the circuit breakers for young men particularly where you don't have them end up going the well-worn route to jail. This is a town with a lot of First Nations people in it. And essentially the idea of going to juvenile prison to going to juvie was just like going to see all your friends. That's just what you did. You end up in that system because everyone does. But that in itself, as we know, can generate a future of abusiveness, of future perpetration, etc. Like no one wants more guys to be going to jail. And I certainly don't want that either. Like, but there's that sense that you've got to have the deterrent at least present. And I don't, I've never seen anything suggested that is an alternative to that criminal justice system deterrent. But what I do see working so well, like in Burke, was they would look at, okay, so how are these kids ending up in juvenile detention? And they actually collected the data on well, what are the major crimes being committed? When are they being committed? Why? Um, what is making it so that, you know, more kids are out on the street at this time of night, et cetera? 
And one of the things they realised is that there were heaps of driving offences. Like in this town, it was the highest level of like driving offences um, almost in the state. And it was because they couldn't get their driver's licence because there was no one there to teach them. And so they just got someone to volunteer and they started volunteering to teach all these young kids. And then because that became so popular, you actually saw a group of off-duty police officers volunteering to teach as well, which for a community that was absolutely racked by violence and crime, to have off-duty police officers actually offering to help Aboriginal boys rather than just like lock them up and arrest them was radical in itself. So they were able to look at all of these different ways in which you would stop someone becoming like losing their stake in belonging to society and going and going over into criminality. And what they found, like, you know, long story short, is that they also started intervening very directly with domestic violence perpetrators in partnership with police, but police would take community leaders out to say, you know, we know you're beating up auntie and we used to turn a blind eye to this, but we're not doing that anymore. But what can we do, you know, and for Aboriginal men, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma. So for one particular guy, it was about getting him to deal with his grief and trauma. That was like the the first port of call. And over time, someone who was getting a call out every week for drunkenness and abuse, there were no police call outs, you know, so these interventions were really working. But what they found was that not only did they reduce domestic violence victimization, Um, by about 37%, which is gigantic. They also increased other markers of success in the community, like the number of kids who are graduating high school, the number of suspensions from school dropped by 79%. There was all these indications that, that life in general in the town was improving and thus crime rates were dropping. So as you say, like any time... I've looked at something to see what works, what reduces domestic homicide, what reduces victimization. It is always a whole of community and systems-based response, which is to say that domestic violence does not operate in a vacuum. It is related to so many different things and we need to be addressing all of them at once, not necessarily just the violence. So to summarize what you're saying, let me see if I can get this right. (laughs) You, you mentioned, you know, this term primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention, pr- with primary prevention being stopping it before it starts, right? So that's, that's, so it's a combination of the carrot and the stick. So that is the justice reinvestment. And the, I guess the U.S. equivalent would be defunding the police, like reallocating money that would go to community policing towards economic development of the communities. Precisely. And they actually did that in Texas, like justice reinvestment. The people in Burke found out about it through the program in Texas, which was brought in by Republicans as they were about to, you know, build new prisons and all the rest of it. They brought in the system of justice reinvestment. They reallocated money that was due to be spent on these new prisons. And for the first time in history, they started closing prisons in Texas, you know, Texas of all places. <laughs> so if it can work in Texas, you know, it can work anywhere because like there is perhaps no other state in, in, in America that is so insane about law and order and about enforcement. The secondary prevention, which is preventing violence from escalating, I would say is the women's policing that you're suggesting where there's a model for basically a stick. Uh, and then the third aspect, the tertiary 
prevention, which is minimizing the impact of violence, maybe is the high point model, which I would describe as basically a domestic violence intervention, which clearly works in abuse and addiction, substance abuse and addiction settings, where, like you said, it's about caring and respecting. People have interventions because they care about the person, not because they're trying to shame the person if they're doing it properly. And then the overall overarching framework is criminalizing coercive control, which brings all of these three together because it's signaling to the public, to society, that we care about violence against women, about coercive control, and we have this systems approach to preventing it, confronting it, and minimizing it. Yeah, and we're not waiting for an incident to occur, which may be the first time physical violence is used. It may also be the last time. It may be a homicide. Because let's face it, you know, we've all got stories from our local areas where there was no physical violence before there was a really serious attack or a domestic homicide. And for me, I just don't know of any other kind of behaviour that has been defined as torture that we have not criminalised. You know, like we even criminalise child neglect, you know, like that's, and that's seen as the absence of, you know, a physical presence Um, And we notice the absolute damage that is done by that. And I just, I understand a lot of the reservations in terms of criminalizing coercive control, but I haven't seen any of the fears materialize in the UK where it's already been criminalized, even where it hasn't maybe, you know, been enforced as well as we'd hoped, like in England and Wales. But in somewhere like Scotland, where the enforcement rate is pretty high, I think there were a thousand charges by the end of last year, and it only had been operational since for about eight months, um, and 96% of them were being prosecuted, where we are making the legislation around criminalising coercive control more sophisticated, more responsive, more instructive to police officers, easier for the judiciary to navigate. It is not sort of this obtuse, hard-to-pin-down form of behaviour that no one can really sort of place discrete incidents within, it's actually not so hard to find, as they do in Scotland, two or more discrete incidents within the system of coercive control that can indicate that coercive control is present, like isolating from friends and family, monitoring through online tools or you know spyware, um, threats to harm or kill a child or a pet, criminal destruction to property, or you know coercing Um, a victim to take substances um, or even coercing them to abuse their own children in order to prevent them from disclosing um, the abuse they're suffering to the authorities. So they've been able in Scotland to really list the, the discrete incidents within the system of coercive control that police need to be looking for, the justice system needs to be looking for, and as different to England and Wales, and this is really, really key, in England you have to prove not only that the behaviour would cause a reasonable person to assume it would, you know, cause someone fear, alarm or distress, but you have to prove that that fear, alarm and distress was experienced by the victim. So you, again, in England and Wales, you're looking to the behaviour of the victim to prove the behaviour of the perpetrator. In Scotland, there is no need to prove the behaviour of the victim in the court. It is all about objectively, is the behaviour of this perpetrator seen as socially unacceptable? Does it align with what we have criminalised, regardless of how the victim has behaved? 
because, and this is what I've heard from, you know, recently a police officer I was talking to, you know, he says, you've got police going into these situations, making value judgments about whether the victim is worth their time because of how she's behaving. If she's resisting, if she's abusing them when they get there, he said, I don't go in there, you know, and make my decision based on the victim's behavior. I look at the behavior of the offender. Is that behavior objectively bad? Is that something I can take action against? And if so, I will. If the victim wants to stay with that offender, that's not my problem and that's not my issue. I will do what I have to with the perpetrator in order to prosecute that behavior. And I think it's really, really important that we don't try to put the victim in the frame to say, unless you behaved or responded in a certain way, then we can't prove that fear, alarm or distress was experienced. Uh, Because victims, as we know, will rationalize away fear, alarm and distress. They will, you know, put on a happy, brave face in order to keep their jobs. They'll do that to protect their children. I mean, you know, you can't look to their behavior. It's like, is the perpetrator's behavior objectively bad? Good, act on that. And that's why I think one of the reasons why the Scottish response has been so much more successful um, and it's, you know, it's it's natural to see that, you know, a few years after you get the first legislation against criminal, against coercive control in England and Wales, you get a more sophisticated response a few years later because you can see what does or doesn't work. How do you prevent in the Scottish response male perpetrators from weaponizing the law against their female victims? by because just the concept of female perpetrators if a male perpetrator falsely accuses the woman of being the perpetrator and i've heard stories of defenders in new york where there's an increasing number of weaponization of the law of the mandatory arrest laws against female victims alleging that they're the perpetrator and the men will beat themselves up or hit themselves with something, call the police and the police will come. And the woman might stop them from doing that or might be in such shock that they might appear to be the perpetrator. Yeah. Well, I think part of this, I mean, what we have as proof since 2015 is that the gendered nature of coercive control is reflected in the prosecutions. So we have the vast, vast majority of prosecutions being male to female with a very small percentage of female to male and then some, I'd imagine, same sex in there, but I haven't done the data on that. So it reflects what we understand about coercive control. I would say that there is more danger of women being misidentified as the aggressor when we're only following an incident-based response to domestic violence. So when you're only looking at one particular assault but not investigating the context in which that may have happened or investigating, you know, what has happened in the other, like the previous years or months of that relationship, then, yeah, you're more likely to be able to frame someone. You're more likely to be able to have police misunderstand violent resistance and misidentify it as as primary aggression. That's, I think, what criminalising coercive control changes is that the police are then there to investigate the entire arc of the relationship. And that's what the head of the lead for crime in Scotland said, that this offence is groundbreaking because we finally have a reason to investigate everything that's gone on in that relationship and put the picture together. It is a far greater task on behalf of the, the male perpetrator 
to frame a woman over a long period of time, not thoroughly beyond some guys, and then to eradicate any evidence whatsoever of him doing the same to her. Do you know what I mean? Like, whereas a guy to just, as you say, scratch himself up and then call police, that's easy. In fact, as we saw happen so often, the, the guy may have been choking the woman. She gives him defence herself. He's got defensive injuries on his face and his arms and he can get her arrested on that basis. Or she's just been defending herself and they've both got injuries and he gets to the, the door first. So I find that to be a much more precarious situation for, for victims than, um, than coercive control, um, criminalising coercive control. In the U.S. context, when we're talking about this movement t- towards in criminal justice reform towards, quote-unquote, defunding the police, it actually can be consistent, I'm assuming, because money would be going towards justice reinvestment partly, but also towards an opening up space and time and resources amongst the existing police force to actually expand their investigation into course of control if we were to criminalize it. Yeah, I mean, that's ideally, like, I think that it needs to be taken seriously within the police that actually this requires a good amount of time, that there are multiple crimes being committed. I mean, even when coercive control is not criminalised, I mean, too often police are going into what is a crime scene and not even just doing the basic investigation, not even taking photos of the area um, or looking at it forensically in the way that they would if it was a stranger assault or if it was a break-in. So, That basic policing and the basic attitude and approach of police needs to be changed. What we saw in Latin America, because the police were, you know, you mentioned The Handmaid's Tale earlier, I mean, that was the reality for Argentinian women, for example, and for women across Latin America, where the police were actively engaged in kidnapping them, in having them impregnated, you know, in disappearing them. There was no way after the 80s and after these fascist dictatorships ended that you could have those same police responding to any kind of gender-based violence crime. They were the perpetrators. So out of that came this, you know, radical reimagining of what would it be to put protection at the centre of your response. And that's what is radical about those police stations, not only that it is a one-stop shop, not only that it is actually a friendly and supportive atmosphere to work walk into, but that it is not just about enforcement It's not about responding and just waiting for something to happen to respond to. It's about prevention. So, you know, those women's police stations, their remit is that they have to spend a certain amount of time on prevention. So they go out looking for women who are experiencing this. They go out and stand outside the churches. They go into the hospitals and find people who've been admitted, who've spoken about the fact that it's come from family violence. They go to the churches where the minister is excusing domestic abuse, and they go out and they hand out pamphlets on purpose on those front steps and they and they speak to the minister about it. You know, I mean, these are proactive police. At Christmas, they go around the neighbourhoods, they hand out presents. You know, one academic here who did a three-year study in Argentina said it was like nothing she'd ever seen, that these police cars would be driving around and people would be jumping up and down waving at them. You know, it's a totally different relationship with the community because what they're doing is, number one, protecting them. It's not about I need, we need to protect the state, not about protecting property. It's not about all the other things that police are engaged with. And in that way, it is just an, a totally different response, but that still has all the investigative powers of police, all the arresting powers, et cetera. 
but it just gets rid of all the stuff that doesn't work. One last question before we go to our concluding engendered questionnaire. So I guess in the U.S. context, if we were to adopt the women's policing model, we would want to have women of color serving communities of color. Yeah, absolutely. I know that doesn't go without saying, but, you know, I think that's absolutely fundamental. The, the problem we have in policing, and it's the same in Australia, is that it's primarily a, a, a white supremacist outfit with some people of colour who are also serving within that. But as we've seen writ large across the United States is that the response is that it is an incredibly white masculinist environment in which people of colour and women have to try to occupy the space they can but, you know, too often probably get swept up in that culture and just have to acclimatise to it in order to be successful, protect themselves, not end up being persecuted within the force. So I think that broadly we need to be absolutely changing the racial balance and the gender balance of policing full stop, not just for responding to domestic violence but responding to everything, responding to communities that they police. But particularly with gender-based policing, Absolutely, you need to have the people who are protecting you understand the cultural environment in which you live and just understand the particularities in the types of responses you're going to need. You know, I know that here in Australia, First Nations women, like if, you, if you're having something like this in communities where there are a lot of First Nations people, like the response of police in those communities needs to be absolutely sensitive to the different needs, traditions and cultures of the people they're responding to. So, yeah, I'm 100%. All right. Well, we're at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Everything. Like, you know, literally everything. And I say that not in a glib way, but in a way that's really become clear to me more recently. And that is that I used to think that, you know, domestic violence, climate change, racism, et cetera, that these were all separate issues that we were all sort of in our little hobby holes trying to solve when actually they're all totally interconnected. And there's an ecologist, Gus Speth, who said, you know, I used to think that solving climate change was about installing renewable energy and, you know, reducing emissions and all the rest of it. And what I didn't realise is this is a problem of values and a problem of culture and that that's what needs to change. And it is the same with all of these separate, seemingly separate issues that are absolutely interconnected. I mean, the thing is what Western civilization has done has run the lie that all of these, we, we, we operate on all these separate stages and we're first and, and foremost disconnected from nature that we have dominion over nature and we just sort of extract what we need from that. And then so that principle then carries into how we consider all of the various stages on which our lives play and all of the various issues that we think of all of these things as disconnected when in fact they are intimately connected and progress in one area is often progress in another so long as we're coming from that, you know, values perspective. And that's why I just talk sort of incessantly about patriarchy and the wrong-headed core belief that we have the we are entitled to have power over. So white people entitled to have power over people of color. All people are entitled to have power over nature. Patriarchy expresses itself as this power over system, and it is basically frog marching us off a cliff. You know, it's like if it's not climate change that gets us, it's a 
freaking animal virus because we've determined that we have unique power over nature and we're going to continue to go into you know more and more wild areas and and, and interact with more and more unpredictable viruses like this power over perspective is actually killing us and i think you know you look at some of the really positive leadership examples around the world and Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand is often sort of really foregrounded in this where you know she's not determining the success of her country based on GDP anymore. She's determining it based on what she calls a well-being index, which is like how are the people actually doing? Forget about the economy and whether it's growing because we know that the economy is growing and and helping some and not even touching the sides of others. So how is that a reflection of a successful country? So it's really obvious (laughs) and it sort of feels like we're having to really slowly walk our way back to what Indigenous people have known for tens of thousands of years, which is that everything is interconnected. What you do to others is what you do to yourself. And we're just hopefully now as as a mainstream culture starting to actually get a grip on that. And I just hope we get a grip on it in enough time because like if you listen to science like we don't have a lot of time to figure this out what gives you hope you know I, I think that what gives me hope and or what sustains me is talking to people like you Terry like or talking to anybody who's gone through this is surviving in whatever way that is is advancing and progressing is learning what it is to be a better human to come from self-love and empathy in the face of highly patriarchal systems that are in the ascendancy around the world. I get faith and hope from the various resistance movements and their power. Black Lives Matters, the Me Too movement, so powerful, so revolutionary, so radical. That's what I keep on sort of holding on to. I also just think that it's I don't feel like I have the luxury of losing hope. You know, that's for people who have like underground bunkers and you know millions of dollars to protect themselves like I have hope because my three-year-old, I have to keep going, even if everything is telling me that it's stupid and that there's no hope at all. That's not a place I can live and it's not a place that I can find happiness. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? We can put men in the spotlight or any perpetrator in the spotlight, stop obsessing over victims' choices and behaviours and start making perpetrators visible. Start attending to them in whichever way that is required. Absolutely keep the safety of victims, both adults and kids, in that same spotlight as a, you know, as a corollary. But stop making perpetrators invisible. Stop sympathizing excessively with perpetrators. Stop letting them off the hook as though that's somehow better for them. It's not better for them. Actually, We are doing men, you know, primarily a great disservice by letting them get away with this behavior over and over again because so many of these men are not only ruining their partners and their kids' lives, but they're ruining their own lives, you know, and it's just accountability is not being tough on someone. It's not like treating them unfairly. It's about making them responsible for the harms they commit, but then also saying, how can we help? Like, let's try to bring you back into the fold, to bring you back to a state from which you might be able to have intimacy, care, and love. That's what we should want for men and not just like, you know, have them suspended in these situations 
where they're allowed to continue abusing day after day as though it would just be too harsh to do anything different. Wise words. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to know that I've been doing a giveaway of your book, the U.S. version, and to my um, collective members, and uh, we plan on talking about it every week when we have our Domestic Violence Awareness Month community conversations. We're going to be having one every every Friday in October. So uh, don't worry, I'm going to be promoting this book. (laughs) I mean, I I don't know if you know you know this, but I think your book is the most important book in domestic violence that I've read. Period. Hands down. Wow, Terry, that's that's a big call. (laughs) Thank you. I I thank you again so much for being on the show. I wish you the most success in this book and getting this message out because I think you're brilliant and your ideas need to be heard and implemented. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Terry. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.